Welcome to the Live Your Purpose podcast, featuring compelling interviews with big-hearted people in the Oklahoma City metro area who are leading, creating, and innovating on purpose. Get inspired by conversations with passionate difference makers from our local community. I'm your host, Charles Gossett, Life Purpose Coach and founder of Full Integration Coaching. On today's episode, we sit down with Dr. Julio Rojas, a psychologist, professor, and consultant with a strong dedication to advancing the understanding of addiction in Oklahoma and beyond. And now, the Live Your Purpose podcast. Welcome to this edition of the Live Your Purpose podcast. My guest today is Dr. Julio Rojas, who has been a member of the faculty in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center since 2005. He's an associate professor and the director of ExecuCare, an outpatient program designed to evaluate and treat distressed or impaired healthcare professionals and executives. His dedication to advancing the understanding of addiction has earned him the recognition of residents, fellows, faculty, and professional organizations. His work focuses on treatment and training issues related to addictive disorders, psychiatric comorbidity, and trauma. He's consulted on a number of new addiction treatment programs in Oklahoma over the past several years. His most recent project was serving as the clinical committee chair that provided the clinical DNA for the Integris Arcadia Trails Center for Addiction Recovery, that opened in May 2019 in Edmond, Oklahoma. Dr. Rojas is past president of the Oklahoma Psychological Association and past chair of its colleague assistance program. From 2014 to 2016, he served on the American Psychological Association's Advisory Committee for Colleague Assistance. Dr. Rojas contributed to Killing Pain, the Epidemic, the first educational video series about the opioid addiction epidemic in Oklahoma. He also served as an expert witness in the historic state of Oklahoma versus Johnson and Johnson and others opioid trial in May 2019. Dr. Rojas earned his doctoral degree at the University of Georgia and completed his internship training at Malcolm Randall VA Medical Center in Gainesville, Florida. He completed his postdoctoral training in clinical psychology with an emphasis in chemical dependency at OU Health Sciences Center. And last year, he received the College of Education Alumni Award Mid-Career Practitioner from the University of Georgia for his work in addictions. Julio, welcome to the show. Thank you, Charles. Great to be here. I'm really glad to have you on the show. We've known each other for a couple of years now, and it's, of course, been around addiction and recovery and treatment and support of that. That's right. Yeah. We got to know each other a little bit through um, Arcadia Trails. And then recently, as at the time of this interview anyway, uh, you invited me out to, to speak as part of the Chemical Dependency Seminar Series there at uh, OU Health Sciences Center. And that was just a, a treat to be able to do that. Well, Julio, as you may know, we start each episode with a kickoff question, and you've chosen yours, so I'm going to send that your way and just see where the conversation takes us from there. Great. Okay, so Julio, what makes you want to get out of bed in the morning? Well, Charles, I'm a morning person, and so I just love, uh, my wife is a surgical nurse, so we we get up at uh, about 4 a.m., and uh, I love that time of the morning. It's quiet. I'll go upstairs and do some stretching and a little yoga and 
get on the elliptical and just spend some early morning time just uh, trying to get my body ready for the day, my mind ready for the day. And, uh, you know, I'm so fortunate to work down here at the Health Sciences Center and the work that I get to do is really not work. Uh, as you know, I'm passionate about this uh, area of addiction and, you know, working with uh, working with caregivers who really have a servant heart for the work that they do in medicine, nursing, pharmacy, and, and so many other sectors. And, uh, and, you know, they're bright, wonderful people, and yet they're unwell in some ways. And it's wonderful to help them sort of, you know, get back to health and wellness and uh, enjoying work and you know, it's a good feeling when I know that in some clinic somewhere in Oklahoma, a doctor or nurse is talking to the patient about recovery. It's a wonderful uh, uh, way in which this has a ripple effect to the broader community. And so it's, um, I'm just overjoyed to be a part of that and uh, excited for each day because no two people are the same and no two people's challenges are the same. And uh, I just love partnering with people and helping them get well. Absolutely. And, and that's how I know you. And, and I've learned that's how lots and lots of folks know you. And, um, and you've been doing this for a while. How long have you been in the field uh, overall? When did you well, get your start? I got my start in September of 1992. Hurricane Andrew had just leveled Homestead. And, uh, and, uh, I applied to work at the David Lawrence Center, which was a 28-day Minnesota model program, a small program, 14-bed uh, facility uh, in a town where I grew up. And uh, I was just looking for a job, like every other uh, junior college student, and it allowed me to go to school and study at night. And, you know, from the first group that I attended, I, I was fascinated, Charles. I just, you know, the the, the way addiction unfolds, uh, the way it, um, it traps individuals, the way it isolates individuals, it, it really just fascinated me. And so, um, you know, fortunately back then I had a lot of wonderful mentors and, uh, you know, these days we make a lot about, we make a lot of fuss about licenses and certifications, but you know, my mentors, the only numbers they had were the Department of Corrections numbers that they had during their period of incarceration. Most of them came up through the School of Hard Knocks, were in recovery themselves, and they were the masters. I mean, they were, they were the providers. They were um, respected. They had credibility. And, uh, and these are the folks I got to learn from. And so they tucked me under their wing. They took me to open meetings. They they walked me through the literature. They uh, occasionally they throw me up there to lecture to a group, uh, and then uh, you know give me some feedback. So they really poured their hearts into this young kid who uh, was just a sponge. And uh, you know it's hard to appreciate uh, that gift until you can fast forward two or three decades you know, and realize that you're, you're really just paying forward all the lessons they taught you, all the, all the wisdom um, for how to help people navigate and recover from this cunning illness, as you know. Um, so, uh, so it was 1992. What is that now? Um, just shy of 30 years? I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. And I can't tell you I got another 30 
uh, <laughs> you know, when the University of Georgia gave me a mid-career award, uh, I kind of feel like I'm on the tail end of my career. So <laughs> I wish they would have had a tail of, at the tail end of your career because that's what it feels like to me. And I mean formally punching a clock work. I don't mean some of the other stuff that I get to do. But, right. But, but yeah, I, I, I'm going to, I'm looking at the, the last decade of my career probably. And, and then I'm going to go get to do things that uh, are even more exciting, spend time with grandchildren and travel and, you know, obviously still be involved in the treatment community in some way, but, uh, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a wonderful, blessed uh, journey. Yeah. And, and looking back at the 1992 and those years right around there, you mentioned that it was really fascinating to you to see, to understand some of this dynamic and, and how addiction traps an individual and, and isolates them. Uh, a quick caveat for those who may not know that are listening in. I'm a person in long-term recovery from alcoholism. So I certainly know on that end, um, what it's like. And I've, I've learned some on the other end now of being around friends and family member, and then now clients who are seeking recovery from addictions. Mm-hmm. What, what was it that was really captured your fascination and, and gave you a sense that, you know what, I, this is something I really want to get involved with. I think it's the, the courage and the struggle. And as you know, for, for many people, this is a several decade struggle and and, you know, they keep showing up and they keep trying to get better. And uh, it's just inspiring to watch. And, um, you know, one of the things I've seen change over the last uh, three decades is moving away from these shaming kinds of uh, interventions where, you know, patients were put in the center of the hot seat, if you will. And then people would go around and give them feedback. And, you know, that... You, if I can think of anything that probably didn't help much in those days, it was sort of that shaming type behavior, because as we know now, a lot of folks uh, come from that or live from that place of shame based. And, uh, but, you know, that was treatment then. That's what we knew then. And uh, 30 years from now, somebody will look back on what we're doing today and think it's barbaric in some ways. So <laughs> it's, it's just the, the point of view you have, but I'm, I'm you know, much more, um, hopeful about some of the trauma-informed kinds of things and some of the, you know, attitudinal shifts about uh, what addiction is and what addiction does. And, you know, neuroscience has helped us understand that and, you know, that it is a, a, a brain disorder and, uh, and you cannot be cured, as you know, but you certainly can be in remission from those symptoms. And beyond that, have a quality of life that for most people would say is better than what they had uh, when they entered addiction. So to be a part of that story, that narrative, that journey, for anybody who's willing, I'm all in uh, because it's uh, it's an inspiring and fascinating thing to watch. And then to see them go on and help others, whether it's a newcomer at a meeting, whether it's a patient in an ER, you know, to me, that's, that's what it's all about is, is you know, those relationships, um, those one-to-one relationships. Uh, and uh, I think we have a similar faith background. And so, you know, in my mind, I'm just a servant. And I'm just a steward of a, of a skill set and an ability to interact and educate. And so it's, just, it's not work. 
it's really not work when you think about it like that. So, so when I get up, I, you know, do my usual routines and then I'm, I'm usually driving down the Broadway extension to get here and start my day and, you know, uh, be there for my patients who are trying to uh, uh, recover from a variety of things. And uh, it's just fascinating and exciting. I know that's not the best description, but it is Friday afternoon. And for academics, by one o'clock on Friday, we just ain't very, uh, we don't sound very educated. We're ready to... (laughs) We're ready to go into the weekend. Well, I picked up on some threads there that sounded pretty educated to me. It sounds yeah. like you know yourself pretty well and and what uh, keeps you inspired about the work that you're doing, which is really the intention of the question, just what captured your fascination. And, you know, what I, what I heard you say, I think, is being a servant, you know, being the person that, and this is my language, that uh, God created you to be and, and gave you a, a mission and a purpose and meaning for your life. Mm-hmm. And you're just trying to live into that. And this just happened to be the path that uh, was presented to you. So uh, you responded to, you know, what piqued your interest and just followed those nuggets. And, and here you are today, a few years later. Yeah, well, that's an excellent way to reframe it, Coach. You said it a lot better than I did. And I'll take it. Thank you. Okay, well, if that sounds accurate, then that's good. Yeah, so <laughs> good. I'm glad. Well, Julio, so of all of the, um, you know, exciting projects, and you mentioned partnerships and collaborations that you've been involved with, not that one is better than the other, but what are a couple or three that, uh, you know, just looking back, it could be recent history or, or back a few years that, that really have meant a lot to you, and, and maybe just unpack a couple of those for us. Sure. I mean, the one the one that sticks out uh, uh, that I've enjoyed the most pre-COVID was that I have a grant in the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. It's a workforce development grant. And so what it freed me up to do was travel across the state. I mean, from Bonita to Woodward, to Idabel, down to Lawton and points in between and really just go into facilities, uh, residential, residential facilities typically, and uh, sometimes spend the day, at times I've spent a week, and I would do lectures and I would run groups and let the staff watch me do that, and then I would watch them do groups, and we just, I just would kind of share, you know, um, uh, some things about individual therapy and some treatment things and just, embed myself within that facility in hopes of helping the folks who are there day in and day out, uh, trying to do the good work that they're doing, just kind of be better equipped, particularly in understanding the interaction between addiction and mental illness and trauma. And so I got to meet a lot of people across the state and I got to see a lot of great work that's being done across our state in places where, you know, they may have very few resources, but they're getting the job done. And, uh, and so that's probably been one of my more exciting projects because it's allowed me to meet people from across the state, to develop friendships across the state, and to see how some of these programs have grown and, and uh, continue to you know, provide the very vital mission that they have in their communities. And sometimes it's the only place in a, in a rural part of the state, right? So you know, they serve a lot of people. So that, that's been something that very, very exciting. And again, before COVID, I was 
you were likely to find me between January and June, somewhere in Oklahoma, uh, anywhere from half a day to a full week. And uh, uh, now that I'm over 50, staying anywhere in a hotel for a full week is not not as exciting to me. But, <laughs> uh, but that certainly was one. And then, you know, you and I met through Arcadia Trails, which was, you know, what a wonderful story. These were four individuals uh, that got together at a dinner table one night. Uh, and if you don't know, that those four individuals are Kelly Dyer Fry, Dr. Morelli Krishna, Reggie Whitten, and the former uh, commissioner of uh, the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse, Terry White. And these four individuals sat around the dinner table and thought about what would it be like to have a premier program in our state um, that really addressed the, the sort of the three key areas that uh, have high comorbidity, addiction, mental illness, and trauma. And uh, and so from that dinner table discussion, you, those four, if you know them, they, I mean, individually, they accomplished a bunch, but you put, you put four super talented individuals like that on the mission and, and the end result of that, along with many, many other people along the way is Arcadia Traders. Uh, and so um, I was I was fortunate to be invited to sort of talk about what what the interaction in terms of treatment, what would integrated treatment, what would individualized treatment look like for, for folks. And and a lot of times the biggest obstacles to that are, you know, the psychiatrist and the, you know, the high the high income professionals that not every program can afford to have, you know, psychologists and you know, and, and more than that, some of the things we think of that experiential therapist, recreational therapist, you know, a, a holistic sort of idea. And so, and so when, when I was asked to kind of begin to think about putting something together without restriction, so who gets to do that? Put something together without any restriction, what does it look like? And then surround myself with people, uh, Let's see, at the time, that clinical committee was, uh, uh, everybody in there was in recovery, uh, addiction recovery, uh, with the exception of me. So around me was, you know, now, <laughs> sometimes there would be long discussions, right? But it was just a fascinating group and you know, each of them brought energy, each of them brought wisdom. I think at one point there, when I tallied it up, there had to be a century of recovery experience around me as we talked about some of this stuff. And literally lecture by lecture and, you know, uh, you know the philosophy of that program began to sort of take off. And, and a lot of people joined along the way. We had architects, we had, I mean, an unbelievable uh, amount of individuals who who basically moved towards the ball, right? They they heard about this project, they wanted it for Oklahoma, and just an unbelievable amount of individuals and organizations and uh, just just got behind it. And uh, so that that program that you see up there, that beautiful campus, was the vision originally of four people, and. You know, that's what I love about this state. This, this is a state where, you know, it's a big state, but it's a small state. And, 
and people can get together and rally and do just uh, incredible things. And so, um, and that's of course how you and I met at a Panera in Edmond a few years ago. And, you know, so you just, you meet so many people and they're also talented and they're also passionate and they all have certain parts. And, and, and if you call on them, the answer is yes. You know, uh, I can't tell you how many of those folks I say, hey, can you help my patient get to a meeting? Hey, can you, can you just reach out a, a hand to this patient of mine who's never been to any recovery meetings in the Metro, but they've gone off to treatment and now they need to get integrated. And the answer is always yes. And it's just, um, I, I really feel blessed to be in a state where there's that level of intimacy and concern and care. And um, so Arcadia Trails is definitely one of the projects that um, I felt truly breath blessed to participate in. And so many great people that I met along the way. And, um, but, you know, we all know why it's necessary for that program to exist. You know, the, the epidemic and the number of deaths and overdoses, and this is very, very tragic. And, um, and you know, uh, Charles, in the last five years, I've probably lost or heard of more patients dying than in those first, you know, 20 some odd years. And I guess if I should, if I, if I go back and just talk about my years as a psychologist, certainly there's been an uptick in the number of patients who die of overdoses and stuff. And that's directly related to the nature of opioids and their highly addictive nature and the difficulty getting off of them. And, you know, now with fentanyl uh, out there and it, it just makes for real tragedies for too many families in Oklahoma. It sure does. And I know that, you know, firsthand you're you're what i would call front line you know you are on the front lines of the opioid epidemic which continues to to wreak havoc on our state and the surrounding area uh, but as oklahomans going back to what i'm picking up on the thread that you mentioned um uh, the intimacy of being able to work together and you know the the type of people that we are in oklahoma and i'm fourth generation oklahoman on one side of my family and and, you know, one of the few of the things that we do really, really well in Oklahoma is when when there is an emergency, when there's a crisis, it's all hands on deck. Mm-hmm. And we do the very best that we know how to do yeah. uh, to come together and find innovative solutions. And that's another thing that we do really well. Uh, Oklahoma has a history of innovation, yeah. of, of just making things work and finding new ways to do things. And and sometimes it can be disheartening. Uh, you know, being on this side of, of the epidemic, like the opioid crisis and, you know, seeing the numbers and hearing friends and friends of friends and family members that, <clears throat> that don't make it or aren't doing well, yeah, it can really be disheartening. But uh, like yourself having this conversation and, and others in our extended community, there's a lot of us out there that continue to care, continue to show up and to be a resource in whatever way we can to make this thing better. Yeah. Yeah, so that's and who, and who wouldn't jump out of bed for a chance to contribute to that? 
<laughs> right. Hey, so sometimes I talk to our listeners. So anybody listening in, you know, if, if you're having trouble jumping out of bed in the morning, <laughs> think about what's really moved you. Maybe it was a few years ago. And I know a lot of people that are considering career changes. Yes. And, and hey, there's a big need in Oklahoma for addiction uh, treatment specialists and support specialists of all kinds. So throw your hat in the ring and get some training and go to some meetings and learn more about it. Uh, it yeah. may be maybe what's calling you. Yeah, I do believe finding your passion has a lot to do with your life and the trajectory of your life and, you know, happiness and all those things that, you know, make make pandemics and other scary events in the world more tolerable. They sure do. That's well said. Absolutely. You know, having a sense of purpose and, and meaning in life is really like an anchor or um, a rudder in a ship. It stabilizes you and, and allows you to continue moving forward, even when things are really, really hard. Yeah. And, and a lot of people have reflected over this past year about work and who they are in the world and <clears throat> what they want to be doing. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, right there. I'm right there with them. <laughs> yeah, of course. Right. We all are. <clears throat> and going back to that metaphor, we're all in that same boat in one yeah. way or another. Well, Julio, I did want to ask you picking up on, on the idea of, um, of recovery, addiction recovery. So some folks may be listening in and, and maybe they're a healthcare professional or, or maybe they're uh, somebody who's, you know, in a position of leadership of, of any kind. Um, what are some of the initial struggles or signs that um, an individual may be experiencing uh, a substance use dis disorder or addiction disorder of, of any kind? Yeah, I, um, you know, there, there are so many things to look for that are drug specific, you know, obviously with opioids, you know, pinpoint pupils is a key giveaway. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, in, in, in knowing what I know, I'm always uh, mindful of that when my family members have surgery and, uh, we know that, uh, certainly, um, you know, addiction and physicians and nurses uh, is, has been uh, a very real problem. And so I think, you know, uh, you know, in the home, I think that medications coming up missing is obviously, first of all, they shouldn't be kept. If you're not using them, you need to take them to the, to the uh, boxes that they have, like at the police station where you can discard them there safely. Uh, but, you know, one of the transformations that you uh, can begin to pick up on early is that they're just not where they're supposed to be. A person who has typically been Johnny on the spot is, is nowhere they're supposed to be. You know, it's a 2 p.m. start time on this talk and Rojas is nowhere to be found. And, uh, you know, so uh, the person the person begins to drift from that individual you have known, the predictability of that individual that you've known. And, you know, you just start hearing things that uh, don't make a lot of sense. You know, why are you sick? It's the flu. It's this, it's that. You know, uh, you know, just these subtle changes sometimes that, that you begin to see that, uh, you know, nodding at the dinner table, that's not something you uh, typically see a person do and so if you see them do that uh, assuming they're they're arrested that might be a sign of opioid intoxication you know seeing somebody uh, uh, with severe uh, flu with loose flesh sort of jerky and unwell and 
but then by that evening you see them and they just look alive and they look composed. I mean, that, that, that's not the typical course of uh, severe flu-like symptoms. You're usually not sick in the morning and better by one or two. And so, but that's stuff I don't think people, uh, you know, have a good sense for, you know, and so, you know, the person can say, well, I, you know, drop back some NyQuil and I feel better. No, that's usually not how that goes. And, and so, uh, you know, uh, um, but, but what, I, what I think is the most difficult thing to detecting any of those kinds of symptoms is that we don't want to believe it. You know, we don't, yeah. you know, that, that's not in my house, right? That's not in my child. You know, that's out there somewhere. And, you know, until we can accept that addiction touches every home, potentially every race, every socioeconomic status, it happens everywhere. There's nobody it didn't happen to particularly when you talk about uh, opioid addiction. But, you know, as you know, by the time it gets to the end, that person is unrecognizable physically, emotionally, spiritually. I mean, they're just a, a shell of the person they used to be. They literally disappear right in front of you. And, you know, a lot of times patients want to, patients, parents want to call that a phase. No, that's not a phase. <laughs> Watching your child become more unrecognizable over the course of months is not a phase. Uh, they're, they're, anyway, so I, I think, you know, I, there's certainly things you can look for, but I think what I would encourage people to also do is look inside themselves for what makes them think that they're immune from that, that they could never touch the, them or their family very directly. And when we can get to the point where any one of us can be affected, then maybe that's health with stigma. And maybe that helps with thinking the person had something to do or had a hand in that, or that's some kind of punishment for a life poorly lived, or that's some kind of punishment for how their parent lived. You know, um, I, I would probably want people to start there first before we go looking for you know signs. And so yeah, if you if you go under their car and you see some uh, uh, aluminum foil with burn marks and some residue on it, that's that's a red flag, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, that's not a phase. That's not experimentation. You know, with opioids, they're so powerful and addictive. You're not going to have a, that's, that's been the problem with this epidemic, right? Is that, you know, for my, for my drinkers, they had decades, you know, to kind of ramp it up and get into a problematic relationship. But with oxycodone, that's going to happen in months. Uh, and, in some people in a shorter time span than that. So, I mean, we have to, we have to get away from this idea that that can't happen in my home and that can't happen to the people I know and love. I believe that could happen to my preacher, my teacher, uh, anybody, anybody. If you have a surgery and you put on those medicines, potentially, you know, you could, and certainly my patients in long-term sobriety, I've had several have a surgery and go back out because of the the nature of those pills and how powerful they are and you know it wakes up that addictive behavior and that addictive process and then it's a challenge to get back so uh so yeah there there's things to look for but i think the the, the main thing is a sense that the person that you know that is typically you know predictable uh reliable that this individual is slowly starting to drift from that one alibi at a time, one 
rationalization at a time. And, you know, you can imagine with this COVID pandemic, how easy it's been to say, I'm sick, I've been exposed, I'm not well, you know, I'm coming down with something. I mean, this, this, this past year is alibi rich if you're not in recovery. Uh, and so, uh, and it's been a high risk year for those who have relied on community and support. And, you know, actually, uh, there's a big difference when you're sitting in that church from watching it online, obviously. You know, there's just, it's not a comparison. It's been wonderful that we've had Zoom and some other technology, but it ain't the same. And so, um, I know I probably didn't answer your question fully, Charlie, but I think, I really think we need to confront this issue of stigma and, uh, you know, who actually can, who is at risk? Everybody's at risk. Yes. You know what? And, and I love that you went there. And, and I think that you hit the nail on the head from my point of view and that the stigma aspect and, and the denial or the delusional aspect of addiction in, in family systems, you know, whether it's a partner or a child or whoever the different roles and family roles are or a coworker, you know, look for these signs that Dr. Rojas has been talking about right now. And uh, he sees it all the time. And I can, I can resonate with what you're sharing with individuals that I work around and work with. You know, this is, that's common to the dynamic of someone who's experiencing an addiction disorder, uh, everything that you described. <clears throat> and then it, it is a family disease or a family illness. So it affects everyone. They have their own part to play. So yeah. if, if we could just get so-and-so well, then everything would return back to normal. I hear that a lot in family systems. And yeah. really, it's much more complex. So I encourage you, again, listen in. And, and if you suspect that you have an addiction or that a loved one does, start to talk about it. Take this action and really look for those signs and, and uh, try to have the conversation. And uh, if, if, if addiction uh, starts to... Um, uh, be disempowered or, or um, have maybe seen its last days, it begins with honest conversations. And yeah. that's, if you can start there, that's a great place to start. And, and on that, and Julio, on the uh, little similar idea that we've been discussing with these families and signs to look for on the outside, what about those folks that are, they may wonder if they are, if they've crossed that line into an addiction disorder of some kind, what, what might clue them in? Uh, in addition to what you've already shared? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I talk about addiction in sort of four parts. And, you know, in that first part, there's that honeymoon and that, you know, getting to know that addictive process. And in that second phase, there's a tremendous amount of learning. Uh, and by learning, I mean sort of, you know, uh, learning how to rationalize behavior, learning how to combine substances to achieve an effect, learning how to use substances in ways that, you know, keep you up in the day and bring you down at night or, or in the reverse. But, you know, there's an incredible amount of learning and, and, and rationalizing and uh, those kinds of things. And then, of course, there's that very cellular part of it, which is the, you know, um, the part in which people are going to experience withdrawal and have a very, even when they recognize, even when they recognize there's a problem, by then, addiction has said it looks very deeply into the person, and it's just, despite their desire, uh, with a bad plan, there's very little hope for them getting better. And then that fourth phase we know of as a recovery phase, and, and the wonderful things that, that can happen for an individual um, in recovery. And so, 
uh, I like to talk about those four phases with my patients so they can begin to, to understand. Nobody stops in the honeymoon phase, Charles. Nobody. Makes total not sense one, to me. Not one person. Why nope. wouldn't they? It's the honeymoon. Right. Everything's and, good. Uh, the drugs are doing things for them that they could never do for themselves. And uh, it's such a transformative experience. People don't get that. People don't get that. If you grow up feeling less than apart from smaller than outside of, you know, and you ingest the substance and it, it transforms you, it doesn't even make you feel normal. It helps you feel better than normal. Mm -hmm. uh, it gives you all the things that uh, for whatever reason you hadn't been able to experience. Nobody gives it up at that point. I've never known anybody to say it was so wonderful. I quit. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. No. So, so, you know, to, to your listeners, I mean, if you're asking yourself the question of whether I have a problem, that in and of itself is telling because we don't usually go around questioning our behavior or questioning our relationships with things that are not problematic. So the very fact that you'd be asking a question like that, uh, I'm glad you're asking it. Something within you is stirring about potentially where this thing is headed. Uh, but take a step back and ask yourself why you're asking yourself that question because it means something. Instinctively, you know, right? And boy, if you could, if you could, if you could interrupt this process at that point, wow, that's that's a different trajectory. But you know, we have self-will, and you know, we have this wonderful brain, and we can just we're capable of mental gymnastics at a level that uh, <laughs> that. That is actually, uh, you know, uh, quite fascinating, you know, when a person can kind of spin stuff up in a certain way and distort reality. And so, you know, that second part, unfortunately, there's so much uh, maladaptive learning. You know, what I'm, what I'm learning now is when I need to feel different, when I don't need to feel at all, that the solution to that is outside of myself and not within myself, Right. Right. Think about that lesson. Right? Yes, that, that that's lesson, a deep lesson. One of, that's going to be one of the hardest things to unhinge from. Is yes. That, is that idea of going from what I need to be at peace is outside of me to the idea that what I need to be at peace is actually within me. Right. Yeah. That, that transition, just that transition is one key point of getting unstuck. And uh and, uh, you know, when you get to the more chronic phases of this illness, there, the challenges are just so much more uh, steep because you've got the physiological component, you know, and that's very real. You know, the brain is signaling that the body's in trouble. And the only solution to that trouble is to ingest that substance or go to detox where they'll, you know, give you a, a similar substance like with alcohol, you'll get a benzodiazepine, right? But it's a it's a it's an emergency to the body, and that's why the brain is signaling. Right, much harder to get off uh, substance than at that point than when you're in that sort of you know point in which you're still developing a relationship with that addictive process. Uh, but but darn it, we have self will, and we have these bright minds, and we can just we can rationalize, and we can. We can make excuses. You know, I was on an empty stomach. I hadn't hydrated enough. Uh, got a bad batch. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on as to why there's a consequence. And uh, 
And those consequences are easily just pushed to the side because the, the relationship with that substance is so magical. Why would they, why would they get that? And I always tell my patients, let's be honest, it does what it promises until it starts doing things to you. And, and we know because of the depression of the illness, those are predictable. You know, those are predictable. Uh, my patient who was sober for more than two decades went back out and uh, he was in the hospital within a six month period. That's the progressive nature of this illness. There, he didn't have another two or three years. He went back to that sort of pattern. And uh, of course, having had age, he's just not going to be able to hold it up. And so consequently, he, and, and you know what he said, Charles? He says, I always heard about progression. And I thought I understood it. <laughs> he said, but I understand it differently now. Right, and by experience. By experience. And, and so you know this, that unfortunately some people have to walk that. They have to, you know, hopefully they survive it, but they have to walk that. And who am I to deny them that? If that's, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Um, uh, uh, but he, he ha he's got it now. He's got it now, or at least today. He has it today because we know that the cunning nature of this illness will have him go back and start thinking, well, you know, I mixed, I mixed uh, scotch and vodka. And there, that was my downfall right there, right? <laughs> yes, I understand that thinking all too well. You know, as, as, as a, an alcoholic in long-term recovery, I'm telling you that the amount of <clears throat> reasons, excuses, rationalizations, justifications, I could spiritualize it, philosophize it. I could find out all kinds of psychological rationales and that's what our brains do. You know, it's, we're trying to get that other thing, whatever that is, that substance yeah. or that behavior that leads to that reward that was, it made life better right. than it was beforehand. So necessarily we'd, we'd want to keep seeking that. But like you said, Julio, when, for me, when it started crossing that line to where my brain knew my deeper sense of self knew, I'm like, you know what? this is worse now. And how can I get that back? And you can't. And then that's depressing and defeating. So you drink more and you get more disillusioned and depressed in my case, et cetera, until I had to come to the end. You know, for me, it was 16 years of active alcoholism. And I think I had about three months of, of sobriety or dry time and all that time before that it was like about two weeks. That's yeah. the only so pretty, pretty consistent, not every night, but, <clears throat> but, uh, it's, it's the idea that not being able to live without it and then not being able to live with it. So you right. talk about that, that relationship when that, when that point came, Hey, that was, that was a good wake up call before it got to these later, uh, long-term chronic phases, you know, that, uh, that I was certainly in line for, I did some damage to my body and yeah. physiology, but, but brother, I mean, Coming out of that phase and disrupting it, then my wife's actions to to leave with the kids and doing what she needed to do to stay healthy and safe. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the things that helped it finally, finally take hold at least through today. You know, and that was several years ago. Yeah, and and uh, for your listeners who may not know much about this illness, this thing works on you as hard when you're sober as when you're using because. You know, every day in my office, I see the manifestations of this illness and people that have been sober for a little while, you know, uh, you know, uh, 
the weather gets bad. Well, I, I can't, I, there's supposed to be storms. I can't drive in that weather. And I say, well, Charlie, back when you were using, did, did dark clouds ever keep you from going out and running down your, like, no. And, you know, and, and you talk to people about, you know, the need for psychiatric medical medicines when it's indicated for depression. And they ask you, well, what are the side effects? It's like, did you ever stop to consider, you know, what were the side effects of using drugs in an unsanitary, you know, uh, house on a, on a dirty uh, countertop and cooked up under the worst of conditions, right? Have you ever, have you ever asked about <laughs> side effects of that? No. For about one second, right? Right, right. And so now we're just, we're just so cautious and careful. But, mm-hmm. but like I told my guy the other day, man, that's, that's the, that's the, that's the illness. It works on you sober. It works on you uh, long-term sobriety. It, it just has manifestations and uh, it, it's, it's important to be able to point those out to patients when, you know, I'll do whatever you say. And by the time you're on the third thing, they've got 12 reasons. They can't do anything you've said, right? Yes. That's, that's the nature of this illness. It is. That is, that's the voice of addiction itself. I mean, that is what it sounds like. It doesn't sound like the individual who knows better. It sounds like yeah. the addiction's trying to get what it wants. Yeah. And I think counselors sometimes, you know, they get, their feathers ruffled about that. And I just smile. That's the, na- that's the nature of this illness. It does no good to get flustered. He, those are the symptoms of the very condition you're there to help with. Yeah. So it does no good to get frustrated. <laughs> right. You know, that's say, the, that's the nature of the work itself. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so after 30 years, it just, it gets more fascinating. I love it more. And, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the recovery stories that unfortunately we don't hear enough of, you know, we hear the overdoses, but man, there's some wonderful stories. And, you know, every now and again, I'll get an email of somebody who's, you know, five years sober, had another kid, is in a healthy relationship, has held a job. And unfortunately, those stories really never get airtime. It's the, the tragedies. And uh, but there's a lot of recovery stories out there. And uh, for those of you wondering about what you want to do next, if you're in a if you're in a critical relationship with a substance, there's people like that that would love to tell you how they did it. There sure are, and uh, you know, consider consider us a resource, and and definitely consider me a resource. Um, <clears throat> we'd love to put you in touch with folks that can help you. Of course, you're if you're in a life threatening situation, you know, call nine one one. You know, but otherwise, you know, if you're really uh, considering what to do next, and you think you might have this thing called addiction, or if you think you have a loved one who might have it, take some action, have some honest conversation, and and determine what to do next. If you're not sure, reach out. That's that's how things get better, or at least they get different. That's how I tell people about my own yeah. recovery. <laughs> First, it got different, then it got better. And the different part that's called change, you know, so when it, when things really started to change and I find, you know, started to find out and, and get some distance between me and the addictive process and the chemical addiction and, and uh, really reckon with life and live life on life's terms. As I started to be able to do that with other people like me who were trudging the same road, things got better. You yeah. know, they got different first, then they got better. And I started liking myself. Imagine that. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and I got a little bit of happiness, a little bit of purpose and meaning. And I'm telling you, this is true. Uh, my life is better today. 
than it was when I started drinking. And you had said it earlier. And I thought, I'm going to remember that because that's, yeah. that's, that's absolutely true. I had some good times drinking and drugging. That's true too. Yeah. But life's not better, you know, under those conditions. It's better this way because I've learned how to live. Do you mind if I speak to the families real quick? Please. You know, one of the things that will absolutely uh, probably just anger you is that as your loved one begins to get sober, you know, you might find they have such admiration and respect to a sponsor, somebody they just met. And, you know, they're just uh, um, so excited and happy and, and they hold this person in high regard. If you're a loved one, don't take offense. It, you know, they're working their way back. They're working their way back to be able to have a better relationship with you. But it has to start somewhere. And sometimes it's a sponsor and sometimes it's a therapist and sometimes it's the home group. Eventually, those, those positive thoughts and feelings eventually uh, will find their way into your relationship. And when it does, I hope that you've had some Al-Anon or something to release some of those resentments because if not it, it usually doesn't go well but often you know families often are just stunned that the person seems more alive and more enthused but only within this relationship with a sponsor or the group or whatever and they, they don't they're waiting for their parade they're waiting for their rewards for this hell that they've lived right and and it's going to take a minute right it's going to take you know developing a relationship with their it, it's in this order, relationship with higher power, a relationship with themselves, and a relationship with others. And unfortunately, the family's on the back end of that line for others, but they're in that line. And so just to, uh, you know, encourage them to have any positive relationship uh, in their recovery early on, because eventually, ultimately, you'll benefit from that. But uh, families are often stunned that they don't you know, they don't get their sort of moment uh, sooner. Uh, <laughs> yes, but, uh, this is so true. And, and, I've, and, and I've, I've been involved in that directly. You know, that affected my family that way. And, you know, because we blame our family members and we rationalize why we drink and drug at them. And then we start to get better. And so my own experience is exactly as you described it. Until I could get healthy with myself. Yeah and get enough distance from the addiction, the process, et cetera, find a new way to live and relate to others. Then I could come back and I'm like, wow, there you are. You know, this is what my family's been for me this whole time. Thank you. Right. You know, I tell my mom and dad, uh, they may hear this episode, you know, I love you all more today than I ever did. And that continues to be true. My wife, I love you more than I ever did. Yeah. Uh, and each day that's true because you get to grow as a person and be close and, and uh, be honest and not trying to escape your life all the time and uh, live on life's terms. And, and who knew that, that that was possible and better? And it is. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes uh, when the person's sort of healthier, then sometimes families bring out the ledger. Yes. All the things they, you know, uh, and so during that period, do some things for yourself you know, to heal from those experiences and resentments uh, so that you're better positioned to be in that relationship without the, the baggage and some of the old wounds. 
Yes. Yeah, that's what, and I have permission to share this part of uh, the story. That's what my wife did. She went to Al-Anon before I went to AA and I had lots of other treatment in my, you know, my recovery plan, but, uh, or path, but anyway, that's what allowed her to release those resentments and understand the illness, understand what alcoholism is and how self-centered it is and how self-destructive it is and how really the, the guilt and shame of most of us addicts Hey, it's hard to relate to those that we loved because we have all that guilt and shame and it's just hard to be close. So we get kind of weird about it yeah. until we can clear that out and, and uh, see people clearly and come back and make some amends, man, it's rough. So I've made a lot of amends <laughs> and you know what? It works. Yeah. So, well, Julio, in our last couple of minutes here, I wanted to just give you the opportunity to kind of open up and, and uh, if you had a word for people like uh, maybe a word of hope coming up for the next period of time over the next year or so, what might that be? What do you hope for people in general for addiction recovery or, you know, for the world at large? Well, I'm excited about uh, so many things. I mean, the past year has taught us we're, you know, sure we have our moments, right? Uh, but I think on the whole, we're resilient. We care about each other. We want to cultivate the best from each other. And uh, I'm really excited about uh, the direction of addiction recovery. You know, the, the, uh, the opioid trial resulted in uh, a victory for Oklahoma. And uh, up at OSU, the National Center for Wellness and Recovery, and they're just positioned to do so many wonderful and great things in Oklahoma. And, uh, you know, um, I'm excited for them and the direction they're going to take that. I'm excited for Oklahoma and what that would mean for the folks within our state. And I just think uh, the job's not done, Charles. We still got work to do. And, uh, and I'm willing and you're willing and many people are willing. And so we just, that labor of love and, uh, you know, that steadiness. And, uh, and we keep growing the number of individuals that, that come to this issue. Right. And uh, that talk about this issue and that open up about this issue. And so uh, by the time I'm ready to kind of step back and and throttle back, I'm just super excited because of the number of uh, individuals who every day choose to go into this field, knowing all the challenges. And they still they still uh, are, are pursuing this path because it, it matters and it means something. So. Um, I'm hopeful about that, um, you know, and, and each of us has a, an obligation to, you know, pay forward the gifts we were given, and and that's certainly a sentiment that uh, rings true in Oklahoma, and like, how, how could you just not get excited about all that, and uh, so I'm hopeful, um, I'm hopeful, I'm, when, when the end comes for me, I would have done my part, and there's a long road to go, and uh, uh, but there's people right behind us who are similar and passionate and who've got, who've got better ideas. And, <laughs> and particularly with this social media stuff, I mean, just the, the ability of this platform to, you know, your podcast, I mean, could be listened to throughout the world potentially. Yeah. Anywhere, yeah. anywhere yeah. you have an internet connection. I mean, what a wonderful platform. Uh, that's coming a long way from circulating a blue book by mail or by people visiting, you know, town to town, right? That's, 
that's just an amazing thought. And so the dissemination of ideas and encouragement that we can touch anyone in the world is, is how could you not be hopeful about that? Well, I join you in that. That's such a good word and a great place to end. Uh, Dr. Julio Rojas, thanks for being my guest on the show today. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Good luck. Thank you. listening to the Live Your Purpose podcast. I hope you've been inspired by my conversation with today's guest. If you like what you hear, please share with your social networks and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Charles Gossett, Life Purpose Coach and founder of Full Integration Coaching. To learn more about the life coaching, public speaking, and retreat services that I offer, visit fullintegrationcoaching.com. And you can follow along with me on Facebook and Instagram at Full Integration Coaching. Until next time, remember, you are meant to live on purpose. Start living yours today.